<coughs> Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want to read just some of the opening verses. Matthew 5 verse 1 And seeing the multitudes he went up into a mountain and when he was set his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Amen. Just ending tonight at the end of verse 12. We know the Lord will add his own blessing upon the reading. I'm sure it is true to say that most people seek happiness for their life. The Puritan Thomas Watson. You'll come across Thomas Watson. Uh, he certainly has a good book on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, other pieces in the Gospels. But he was to say that it was the target that every man aims to hit. But yet there are many who miss the mark. And they know nothing of true happiness. And the reason being is that men generally seek happiness in the wrong place. They seek it without any reference to God or to the Saviour. And they seek happiness apart from the way in which God has laid out for us. You might have heard it said, to be made happy, you first must be made holy. That is what the Saviour is teaching here in the presence of his disciples. As we find at the start of Matthew chapter 5. You cast your eye upon these verses that we have read together tonight. And you'll realize that time after time the Lord uses the word blessed. Or happy. It's the same as in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man. Let it be understood that happiness belongs only to the people of God. The world and the carnal do not possess it. Oh, they may have a pretense. And there may be those times where it is betrayed that they have happiness. But go a few hours later. And it's very much the opposite. The devil has a good PR machine. And so he will present the booze and he'll present even the uh, drink of the world and the drugs of the world with happiness, with laughter and all of that. But it's only a pretense. It only lasts for a season. Why does happiness belong only to God's people? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. And therein is found the fount of the greatest blessedness. In that Christ has saved us from the guilt of our sins. We're happy because we know pardon for sin. 
And furthermore, we have a happiness because we know also no longer that condemnation that we were under as sinners. Romans chapter 5, or 8, I should say, in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And surely we have a happiness because not only has Christ saved us, but he also satisfies. He daily loadeth us with benefits. And the blessings and the happiness enjoyed on earth is but a foretaste, of course, of what it will be in heaven itself one day. I want us to, we ought to really give our attention to the, the first blessed here, the first, but is sometimes referred to as the Beatitudes. You'll notice the meaning. Verse 3 is really the verse, although I'll bring in a little about the first two verses, but blessed are the poor in spirit. Many may wonder why the Lord started his sermon as he did. It begins, as it were, right at the bottom. And verse by verse, there is given a true portrait of what a believer is. This is not some social teaching that the Lord has given to how to get on in life. That's a portrait of every child of God. The Sermon on the Mount is all of Christ. It's what many people miss out in, uh, uh, when they refer to the Beatitudes these days. These Beatitudes do not describe different kinds of people. They ought to be taken as one and therefore the character of a child of God. And the Savior had good reason to start with where he does because in doing so, he was dealing a blow to all rotten pride. You'll notice the verse 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was said, his disciples come on down. That doesn't mean the Lord was getting away from them. He saw the multitudes, so we'll go up the mountain here, man. Many of the multitudes invariably would have been the Jews. And the Jews were notorious for their pride. You look at the last verse of chapter 4 about this multitude. There followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. And just to give you the indication that uh, the Lord is primarily, I'm going to bring, go on to this, say this, but he's primarily dealing or speaking initially to the disciples, <clears throat> but it brings in others. Because you look at chapter 7, it says at the end of this sermon, verse 28, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. It doesn't say the disciples, it says the people. So there's the multitudes, you want to get that picture in your mind's eye, and you see where they've come from in verse 25, and they're there and he saw them and went up into the mountain and he got himself set down. That's how it was in those days. They took the posture of sitting down to teach. And initially, as I've said, the disciples are right there. But invariably in that multitude were many Jews. And they took pride in their religion. They took pride in their laws and in their ceremonies. They were puffed up with their own ideas of worthiness before God. But primarily, as I've said to you, the message was for the Lord's disciples. And I don't want you to just think that it was for the twelve. 
when it says that the, the disciples came unto him, that included those that were following Christ within that multitude. And they were there. They were closest to the Savior as he began to teach. In other words, many who followed Christ were there and they heard it, what he said. And it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Don't think that's strange. Because men and women, the Lord was to teach oftentimes by not opening his mouth. He often taught them by what he did. But here's an opportunity, here's an occasion where he opened his mouth and he taught them. It primarily is a passage for the believer. And pride, of course, is something that need not be part of the child of God. Proverbs chapter 6 reminds us that's something that God hates. Verse 16 says, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. Top of the list. A proud look. It certainly is a feature of the unconverted soul. The Apostle Paul is a case in point. He was that self-righteous Jew. He was that one who had to be brought to see the folly of depending upon that. Upon his religion, upon his background, his upbringing and all of that. Philippians chapter 3 and you have it in verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Why could he have confidence in the flesh? Well, he brings it out. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law. I, I Pharisee. He had, he had claimed the letter within his religion. He had claimed his social letter within his religion. He had got to the place where he was even a teacher of the law. He was a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church. We know something of that. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Here's a man that was full of pride, of a stock, of what he did, of how he achieved what he did. But that all changed when he was converted, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yet doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. See those things I've just mentioned? It's just defilement. I've now got Christ. That is where men and women, a sinner needs to be brought to. If they are to see their need of salvation, unless they feel their utter helplessness, unless they feel their utter hopelessness and unworthiness and brought to see an end of all hope in themselves, then they will never seek the Lord in salvation. And the Savior's teaching this in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does the poor in spirit mean? Well, <clears throat> I should say to you that there are two words that Two words for poor that Matthew could have used in the Greek. 
But the one which he does use gives a most powerful picture. I'll show you the one that he doesn't use first of all. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and the words of verse 9. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 9. It simply says this. And Paul's speaking about liberality and so forth. Verse 7, you'll see that. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness remaineth forever. It means there, that word, one who is so poor that he must earn his daily bread by his own labors. But the fact that Matthew does not use that particular word teaches us surely that the sinner has nothing whatsoever to offer to God or to contribute toward his own salvation. That's why he doesn't use that word. The word that Matthew did use under, of course, the guidance, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, means one who is utterly and totally depraved. Or maybe I should say the word destitute. Utterly and totally destitute. One who survives and lives not by his own labor, but who totally depends upon the free gifts of others. And that is made abundantly clear when we turn to a place where we do find that other word, Luke chapter 16, where it is used in the words of verse 20. And it is a familiar passage. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was led at his gate full of sores. Verse 22. Came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. You get the picture there of this beggar being brought. He couldn't even bring himself, but he was brought every day to the gate of this rich man's house. And he's depending entirely upon what is given to him. He's utterly destitute. The word beggar is the word poor that is used in Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. It's not a powerful picture. That is the place the sinner must come to. That is the work of the Holy Spirit to show the sinner that they have nothing, that they are nothing, and they will never be anything outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the picture that the Savior is painting in these words. He's not describing someone who's able to do something for himself and maybe a bit of help from God and then they will have this happiness. No, it's exactly the opposite. He is utterly destitute. All he can do is in realizing his helpless condition is cast himself down before the Lord for mercy. In fact, the the word poor there comes from a verb which means to couch before someone. That's whom the Lord is describing in this verse. One poor, destitute sinner. Who has nothing to offer to God, but who merely casts himself before the Lord, calling upon his mercy. That's the place that each of us were brought to when we called upon the Lord to save us. 
That's the place we need to pray that the unsaved would be brought to by the grace and the mercy of God in these days. A day of easy believism and a day of false and empty professions where we need to see the sinner brought to where the publican and the temple was to be found. Luke chapter 18, you remember it's a familiar uh, passage about that, those two in the temple. But verse 13 speaks of him, the publican standing afar off, would not lift so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. His appeal was for mercy. He wouldn't go among the religious. He didn't uh, feel himself worthy enough to be there. He stood afar off. He wouldn't look as much unto heaven. He just smote upon his breast. But he prays, God be merciful to me a sinner. His appeal was for mercy on the grounds of the shed blood. He in effect was praying, Lord be propitious toward me. Look upon the shed blood of the sacrifice in the temple and on those grounds deal with me. On account of that, show grace to me, the unworthy sinner. And of course, what a foreshadowing of Calvary. That's how we can come to God in prayer tonight. It's on the grounds of propitiation. It's on the grounds of the shed blood that Christ uh, offered at Calvary's cross the perfect lamb you see that's the one who's poor in spirit it's nothing to do with poverty that is supposedly in this country I think that's exaggerated Now, I'm not decrying someone who is depending on the, the cross that they have. But there really is no excuse in this country. But the social services and all of the rest. The problem, men and women, was where is the priority for those people that the money comes to? They have a priority for the drink or the fags or something else. They get that money. They choose not to put it to the food or clothing or heating or whatever. But don't be of the mind that the Lord's speaking about the poverty and a social aspect here. It's the blessed and the poor in spirit. It's a spiritual teaching. It's those who recognize themselves. I am undone, unworthy. I need Christ. And maybe see many of those this year. The second part, not the meaning, but rather the promise. <coughs> What is the promise to the poor in spirit? Well, it's simply, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is Christ's kingdom over which he is king. <coughs> and the promise is that as soon as the sinner is brought to saving faith in Christ, then they're brought from under the control of the devil to being a subject of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't say the Lord's my saviour and yet he's not my king. 
That's a nonsense. He is your saviour. But he is also your king. Because he rules over you. The Lord becomes our king. Isaiah chapter 33. In the words of verse 22. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Men and women, we need to be able to say the Lord is my king. He's our king. That's salvation. But not only does he subdue us to himself, but he also rules over us. He also defends us. He also restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. That's the teaching of the Shorter Catechism. With regard to how Christ executeth the office of the king. He does all those things. And what a blessing it is to know that Christ is king. And he sits upon his throne. And as a king he cares for his subjects. And the people of God tonight have the assurance that the Lord cares for me. And the Lord shall supply all my need. According to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If you have an anxiety about this year, the Lord will not fail you. He will supply all our need. But men and women, I want you to understand that we are also counted as kings. And that's what we've been singing about even in our opening praise tonight. But you turn to Revelation just for a moment or two. And where that uh, hymn was based on, is Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. John, of course, in the Isle of Patmos, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're counted as kings. It records there that the song of God's people on earth, he hath made us kings and priests. Now you come to Revelation 5 and verse 10 and you'll see the song of the redeemed in glory. Verse 9 says they sung a new song saying not good. A song has to say something. Spiritual song ought to teach something, ought to say something. Verse 10, And has made unto us our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So, he is king, he is our king, but he has made us kings. And of course, the saints in heaven also sing of the Lamb. That's the testimony of all of God's people, what the Lord has promised, even in this verse. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as kings we shall reign with Christ. Revelation 3 verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. Even as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. 
That's the climax for what Christ has done for us. He found us destitute, helpless. He saved us. He'll bring us one day unto the kingdom prepared for us before the foundation of this world. And a king has certain things which set him apart and caused him to stand out. Not that long ago there was the coronation of, of Charles. He stood out among the crowd. A king has a crown. And the saints of God after death will have their crowns. Second Timothy chapter 4. In the words of verse 8, Paul could speak of coming near to the end of his life. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. Revelation 2 verse 10. Because thou hast kept thy... That's chapter 3. Chapter 2, verse 10. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. And ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. We're not only pardoned, but one day we shall be crowned. Kings have robes. It is their attire. And so the saints have robes and glory. Revelation chapter 7. Verse 9. After this I beheld, lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. Robes signify purity, signify our glory. You see, men and women, these old robes of the flesh wouldn't do because they're tainted with sin. But in God's kingdom, in God's heaven, no sin shall ever taint, or no sin shall ever defile there. Clothed in white robes. Righteousness of Christ. Kings have their scepters. The scepter was held out to Esther, you remember, so that she could have an audience with the king, Ahasuerus. He's an earthly king. And so as the redeemed of the Lord, we shall have the scepter and palms in our hands as tokens of victory. That same verse 9 goes on to say, And people and tongues stood before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Because of Christ, we have victory over sin, we have victory over hell. And we overcome the devil by the blood of the Lamb. We're on the victory side. You're on the victory side this year. Kings of thrones. In their position of honour. They sit on the throne. And so is God's people being victorious over sin. We shall have our thrones and glory in the presence of God. I think we've already read Revelation 3 in the verse 21. Two different words. Two different thrones there. The Lord sits on his throne. He sat down with my father in his throne. We shall sit with Christ. We shall reign with him. And our throne shall be secure, unable to be toppled by human invention or craft. You see, men and women, that's what Christ has purchased for his people and that is what God has promised that can be seen 
from the teaching of this first beatitude. How worthy then that it should begin with the word blessed. Have I? Have I is that beggar in spirit? That soul that realizes their unworthiness, their destitution, their only hope is Christ, for the heirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Christ we are assured of heaven. For our salvation depends not on anything that we do, but upon what the Savior has already accomplished. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, I'll finish with this. <clears throat> Somebody says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're assured of that. Christ has purchased it for us. One day we shall sit with him, we shall reign with him. When we've read there, even in Revelation, we shall reign with him on the earth. Didn't we touch upon that not so long ago? And Christ comes back to set up his kingdom, a thousand year reign. And so, men and women, low Satan may roar of ills that we have done. And our faith may be weak at times, and our faith may falter at times, and we may de uh, uh, deny the Lord and, this, uh, and uh, fail him. Yet the Lord never changes. And his promises are certain. How we ought to stay humbly at his feet. Having that good part. That Mary had and often was found to be at. We interesting study about Mary. The times you find her in the, in the gospel. She's always at the feet of the Savior. She's at the feet of the Lord. May we often be found there, even this year. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts tonight.